Welcome to another edition of Around with Randall, your weekly podcast on making your nonprofit more effective for your community. And here is your host, the CEO and founder of Hallett Philanthropy, Randall Hallett. As always, I can't thank you enough for joining me, Randall, here on this edition of Around with Randall. Today's discussion, conversation, podcast is about that age-old saying that many of us just shake our heads at. But that's the way we've always done it. I'm sure, like me, you've heard this in various contexts, in various ways in our professional life. And today we're going to talk about what this is, what it means from a psychology perspective, how it applies to the nonprofit world and a couple of examples, but most importantly, the tactical, how you can overcome this. There's a different way of looking at this phrase. Really, it's the story of the five monkeys. Uh, Originally coming from Psychology Today and author Michael Micalto talked about it in this manner. There are five monkeys in a cage and there's a ladder. And on the top of the ladder are a bunch of bananas. And the monkeys naturally want the bananas. So they start up the ladder. And every time they do, a human being sprays them with ice cold water. And they learn quickly that as much as they want those bananas, they're not going to climb that ladder. After enough of this effort, One monkey is removed and a new monkey is put in its place. And that new monkey looks up, sees the bananas, starts up and is immediately ripped down by the other monkeys because they know they don't want to be sprayed with the ice cold water. Well, very shortly, another monkey is replaced with one that was there originally and he sees the, 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 the bananas and starts up the ladder and he's pulled down. And this sequence goes over and over until all five of the original monkeys are, are exchanged. And the latest and last monkey starts up the ladder. And remember, none of the original monkeys are there and they all pull him down. And the thought process is very simple. None of them were there when the original issue happened. But that's the way it's always been done. And if you were to have the ability to ask the monkeys, why are you pulling that monkey down? Since none of them were original to the spraying, they would tell you, well, that's the way it's always been done. This is all based on uh, research done in 1967, a little different variety, not a ladder monkeys, but some similar premises by uh, G.R. Stevenson, psychiatrist, psychologist about this work about understanding this concept. And this concept has a name. It's not just, this is the way we've always done principle. It's actually confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is really caused when we look to interpret or favor or recall information in a way that confirms what we do and what we know. Even if there is a data or or information or others that can contradict it and probably prove it wrong. It's always been done this way. It, it's so frustrating because 
data is out there to tell us to look at it differently. We see this in other industries. So for many years, if we use the airline industry, the way it was always done is, is the pilot was completely in charge and everybody, particularly the co-pilot, in, in days when there were a flight engineers as well, would acquiesce to whatever that decision was. And what they found was, is that that's a bad idea because maybe the co-pilot sees, feels something differently. And now aviation has gone to the system where the pilot still has the final say, but they build the protocols so that they work together. And they both have the ability to chime in and say, wait a minute, we have standard procedures. This is deviation from that. We see this all the time in our offices, whether it's, which we'll talk about here in a second, simple protocols of how money's cash to how we raise money to the types of activities we choose. There are some other principles, psychology, beyond confirmation bias. Another one's belief perseverance. And that perseverance is an unwillingness to admit that there's something incorrect in a process or activity or something, particularly when it's been announced, i.e., gosh, it's A. And so you stand by that A as long as possible because human nature says we don't like to be wrong. And in fact, some of our greatest leaders are the ones who admit they're wrong and they adjust. But pers uh, belief perseverance would tell us it's very hard to do. I see this in my nine-year-old, and we work a lot at home on, number one, if you're going to say something, you got to have the data to back it up. Number two, it's okay to admit, gosh, I didn't quite get that right. We also know irrational primacy, primacy effect, which is a reliance on information that we learned early on in life. You see this with uh, kids in that if they learn something, I think about sports, because that's the world I live in, that they learned a rule, let's say, and I think of golf because golf's made up of, of really arcane, crazy rules, which I absolutely love all of them. But you learn a rule wrong and that affects your defense of it because you learned it on early on in life. And then you learn later that rule is different or heaven forbid it change. Illusory correlation is also an important factor. Didn't realize we were going to get so much psychology here on Around with Randall. But it's where we falsely connect two things together. And that we think of them now as intertwined. Cause and effect really is what we're talking about. That an, an event or something of, of, of that uh, happens. And sometimes we this is where superstition comes in. You know, I think about, uh, you know, you wear, and I tend to do this, you wear the same shirt when your football team plays because you believe it's going to bring them good fortune. I don't think that's probably true, but it makes you feel better. When we start looking at this confirmation bias, belief preservation, irrational primacy effect, illusory correlation, it's all based on this, what we know as well, that's the way we've always done it. And the reason why are any one of those or all of those four. And it's frustrating, particularly if you're new into an organization or you've come in from another place and they do it a little bit differently and you can't get anybody to look at it, think about it differently. People get set in their habits 
and habits are hard to break and they can be emotionally painful to break. So as a result, all of these things are bringing us to this moment where we're like, what are we supposed to do here? So let's use some examples in the nonprofit world of where any one of these or all of these play an effect. These are more and more high level. These aren't even like the process inside your office. Let's start with the big one. Uh, the idea of major gifts versus events versus annual giving. Whether it's the Association for Healthcare Philanthropy or the Association for Fundraising Professionals, AFP, AHP, Nonprofit Times does a tremendous, uh, huge report on giving, local giving. I think about what goes on here uh, locally in Omaha. There's a great organization that pulls some data together, uh, NAM, Nonprofit Association of the Midlands. They're all telling us the same thing, that the best ROI we can have are major gifts. And I define major in this case as major over a certain dollar figure, planned gifts, you know, anything that's a bigger dollar ask, solicitation, and gift. And yet, we are constantly being drugged back into oversaturation of events, golf tournaments, galas, and other things. The more sophisticated the philanthropy, the less likely we are to be drugged back in. So when we think about academic medicine, we think about high-level uh, universities, I'm not saying they don't do any special events, but what they do is they prioritize their limited resources on driving major principal gifts into their process because they're willing to look at the data. But this mantra of, well, this is the way we've always done it, for a lot of organizations, whether it's board-driven or staff-driven, puts us into these events, and it drives me crazy. I'm not opposed to an event in the right context, but when you have two or three, it's pulling your time, your resources, your talent to activities that aren't going to generate as much revenue. We all know what the data says. The question is, how do we change it? I'll give you another one, one that I've spoken about for most of my career, although I didn't have the data to figure it out until recently. The idea of portfolio size. When I began in this profession, the argument was, well, you need a portfolio as a major gift officer of 125 people. And the first conference I ever went to, a case conference, I, that was the presentation. And I walked up afterwards and said, where did the 125 came, come from? And you can predict what they were going to say. That's the way it's always been. That's best practice. Where's the data? I asked because I'm a pain in the backside. For 15 years, I kept asking, where's the data? Tell me how we know this is the right number. No one could ever prove it. And then Northwestern did something that was really cool is they ran a study internally and they found out that the average portfolio size was about 115. So in the ballpark of their gift officers, and yet 80 plus of them weren't solicited. So they forced their gift officers to reduce the portfolio to 40. And the rule was, generically, that they had to ask those 40 people this year. And after looking at it for two years, they then realized that gifts went up in terms of dollars by 600%. They doubled the number of solicitations. And they talked to the gift officers. And they said, we were able to get rid of paralysis by analysis. 
we actually knew who to talk to because we only had 40 people to worry about. EAB, which is another consulting group, looked at in more mass numbers, hundreds of gift officers, and they found out the most successful ones were the ones that had portfolios somewhere between 50 and 80. Lower portfolio sizes generate more revenue because we concentrate gift officer activity on the things and the people that are going to drive revenue this year, the biggest opportunities. And yet I'm still working with people who say, but 125, they may give someday. Yeah, but they haven't given you to you money in 10 years. Why are we still worried about them? Because that's the way we've always done it. Who to mail to, how to mail to them. The traditional model of mailing and well, artificial intelligence is coming in and it can help inform us not only who major gift prospects are, but who I think about the work that Nathan Chappelle and, and Aristotle and, and donor search are doing. They actually can tell you who to mail to and more importantly, who not to. So you can eliminate them, but yet we need to mail to everybody because that's the way we've always done it. When we go Outside of the specifics of philanthropy, but to a key component is and are those leaders in our organizations who don't come out of philanthropy. In hospitals, it's the C-suite. In education, it's deans and 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 professors and other educators. You may have uh, you may be the chief advancement or development officer, but you have a CEO who's not a fundraiser. Their view of philanthropy. This is the way we've always viewed it. This is how I viewed it in my career. And in some ways, this goes more into the belief preservation and primacy effect, meaning they've known that it's hard to get them when they're 50, 60 years old, and they've always thought of philanthropy in this way. Well, you go do it. Instead of, wait a minute, this is an organizational-wide effort, and the CEO needs to be a part of this process. That is because that's the way we've always done it. So what I've only known. The size of our foundation and community boards. Well, we only need to be this size, 12, 15 people. But yet their role has evolved. That's also one where we need referrals from them, two to four per year, let's say. Well, if we only have 12 members on the board, that's not enough. Should your foundation board be 49 or 41 or 38 or a larger number? Because the role has changed. All of these are examples. The question becomes, how do we get past it? How do we help groups of people, maybe starting with ourselves, our office, our organization, our boards, the community, get past this idea of confirmation bias? It's the way we've always done it. Number one, you have to regularly challenge your core beliefs. You have to be open enough to say, what I've known, what I've done, let's take it off the table. Is it the right thing? And that's hard because sometimes those become part of who you are. And the challenge is, is to become more of the person who sees change rather than, or acceptance of new data rather than this is the way we've always done it. That's a challenge to self. And it may be a challenge to a core group and who they are and who they believe they are. Always question conventional wisdom. Always. It doesn't mean it's wrong. But if you're not questioning it, then at the end of the day, you're just accepting it. It's always what we've done. Use data, science, facts to drive decisions. I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of 
in consulting the work that I do is the things I recommend, I have numbers to prove. Most of them are research and data from other places, but I'm giving them attribution and I'm utilizing them to say, look, we have to look at this differently. If you use data process, what you end up with is a better result because you'll do the things that will drive the most effective end product that you're looking for. If you're wanting to figure out how to do something, planning, strategic vision, or just annual planning, don't start from where you ended. Start fresh. Because if you start from where you ended, in some ways, the analysis and thinking is the same as what happened before. Be willing to start with a blank whiteboard if you're going to do something, even though you've done it 50 times. Is there a different way of looking at it? Find people that will bring you an opposite view and accept their ability to explain their vantage point or their view. If you have people come in and speak that are think oppositely than you do, but you're not willing to listen to them, then it was a waste of time. Be willing, be open enough to invite people in and be willing to listen to be that challenge to what you think and do. That idea of collaboration with other people is quintessential. If you are doing planning and it's the same four people, six people, nine people all the time, you're going to end up with confirmation bias because there's no outside view. So artificially, you may have to bring in someone to help you see a different perspective. And maybe that only means movement of 10 degrees or 15 degrees, but that could be the difference between good and great. Lastly, if you find yourself digging in, think about this idea of what we're talking about today and challenge yourself. Don't be afraid to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm digging in here. Is this what I think it is? If you do these things, if you challenge yourself, if you question that wisdom, if you bring in new people, could you can you bring in that concept? Is the opposite possibly true? Do you use data? All of these things will help you get to the best result. And that's our goal. And that's what confirmation bias sometimes precludes, is allowing us to get to the result we want. Philanthropy needs less confirmation bias because we're needed more today than ever so we can maximize limited resources to drive the best results. And if we do that and we do some of this, you'll see improvement in the things that you do. Don't forget, check out the pod or the, excuse me, the blogs at howlatphilanthropy.com, posting them two or three a week, 90 second reads, just ways to kind of challenge some things and see different aspects of the world. Also, if you'd like to communicate with me right here on Around with Randall, that's podcast at Hallett Philanthropy. And if you were watching this on YouTube or Apple listening or Spotify or Our Heart Radio or wherever, leave me a review. Share it with a friend. Don't forget, you are important to what goes on in this world. Philanthropy and nonprofit work is more and more essential. We see it every day, whether it's basic services and food and shelter to healthcare to education. Remember my favorite saying. 
Some people make things happen. Some people watch things happen. Then there are those who wondered what happened. You are someone who's making something happen, partnering with others who want to do the same to help those and help the causes we believe in who are wondering what happened. And I can't imagine a better way to spend a professional career. And I hope you feel the same. We'll see you right back here on the next edition of Around with Randall. And don't forget, make it a great day.